Hi, I'm Tara. Welcome back to Books and Beyond with Bound, where we talk to some of the finest writers in India to find out what makes them tick. So, on this episode, I spoke to the talented Pakistani writer Moni Mohsen. She is the author of the best-selling novels *The Diary of a Social Butterfly*, which is a collection of her long-standing social satire column in the Friday Times. And her latest book is called *The Impeccable Integrity of Ruby R*. And this is so interesting because Moni imagines, reimagines the Me Too movement in Pakistan. And I love this book for a variety of reasons. But before that, some news. So my co-host Michelle could not make it for this episode, but she did get her questions answered through me. So what I loved about this book is that obviously it reimagines, you know, the Me Too movement in Pakistan. It's a tongue-in-cheek book. Moni Mohsen is known for social satire, and we find out about what makes a good social satire in the book as well. And I'm generally interested in the concept of borders, movement of people across them, and so I'm actually a fan of Pakistani literature. So for me, this episode was really, really special because this is one of the top Pakistani authors and one of the top social satirists that I've read. So Michelle wanted to know who the male characters in Moni's book were based on. And I found out that, believe it or not, Seth, who is a politician that the protagonist Ruby ends up working for, is inspired by Amitabh Bachchan of the 1970s and the Trump of today. And if you read the book, you will understand why. I obviously love the female leads, and I love the fact that you know Ruby gets so taken in, and she even ends up controlling a troll army. You know, and she's this normal girl. And Moni revealed so many interesting things in this episode to me. And I found the way that she spoke about, you know, social issues about fiction was very, very honest. I still can't believe I was talking to her, um, and it's something new because I'm the solo host here. So, you know, write in and let me know how I've done. Also, all you writers out there, if you have written a story and you want it to be looked at by a professional editor, do write to us at connect at boundindia.com or DM us at Bound India for our editorial services. Find out more, and we are always on the lookout for the next best story. So, for now, let's listen to what Moni has to say. So hi Moni, welcome to Books and Beyond. We're really, really excited to have you here. Thank you, Tara. I'm so excited to be invited. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. And you know, I read your book, The Diary of a Social Butterfly. You know, I think around the time when it was released, so that was around you know five or seven years ago. And then when I saw that you had released uh, your new book, The Impeccable Integrity of Ruby R, I was really, really excited. Couldn't wait to read it, and it really did not disappoint. You know, I really found it funny. It, hmm. um, so I read that you know Ruby R was inspired because you actually read about the Me Too movement. So how did you go about constructing or thinking about? how you would portray the me too movement in pakistan and what were sort of the parameters you took into consideration well first of all thank you so very much for saying all the kind things that you have about the book i'm so glad to hear that you enjoyed it because it is quite different to the butterfly um it is funny and um i hope it is funny and also there's quite a lot of social observation in it it's a slightly darker book i feel so going back to what you were saying about the uh, me too movement 
I, you know, the idea occurred to me while I was watching uh, on television the trial of, uh, not the trial, but the, the news of, of um, the scandal of Harvey Weinstein. And I thought to myself, how would this play out in the subcontinent? Because, you know, in a, in such a, a, such an entrenched patriarchy, would anybody believe a woman if she came out and said that this, something like that had happened to her? Um, I also wanted to write a little bit, uh, a slightly more, um, nuanced story. If there's very much a, a victim and, and a, a predator, then it's, uh, easier to take up positions. Um, so I, I was thinking about this as I was writing the book. I must say, uh, Tara, I am not one of those writers who plots the book out beforehand. It kind of organically takes um, its shape as I'm writing it. So I discover a lot of things as I'm writing the book. It later became a slightly different book because I also wanted to address a whole lot of issues that I see now in, in the world today with politics and the media and social media in particular. So I wanted to write a more rounded kind of book and the parameters therefore kept growing, uh, sort of extending more and more outward, if you know what I mean. Right. And I did read that, you know, you don't plot the book, which is very interesting to me. Uh, and it sort of just evolves. And I also read somewhere that, uh, you know, there are a lot of characters that you create and then they don't end up in the book as well. So I always like to also imagine, you know, world after reading the book, the world of the character and what could have been. Yeah. And the book had a much happier ending before. Oh, is it? Yeah, I changed okay. it. So why did you why did you change it? I want my fiction, uh, although it's fiction quite clearly, uh, I want it to be uh, to have a, a ring of um, honesty and truthfulness to it. So um, I felt that a story like Ruby's couldn't really end on a high note. You know, I felt that there had to be some reckoning, and it seemed to me that the reckoning would come for people who don't have power in the subcontinent because somehow or the other people who are powerful uh, don't have to account for their actions. They are protected by their status and by their privilege. Right. No, and I think you portrayed that so, so really well, you know, with the dynamics between uh, the character who is this really young, sort of bright-eyed, hopeful person who actually wants to make change and sort of gets enamored by, you know, this larger than life figure who turns out not to be as she hoped. And, you know, so it's very interesting, even when reading the book, because you drop in clues that and, and it's very obvious to the reader that, you know, this politician that that Ruby works for is not as great as Ruby thinks. So all the while the reader knows that, you know, uh, <laughs> exactly what he's about, but the character itself doesn't know. And I found that dichotomy very interesting. Tara, I'll say two things here. You know, one is that there is a difference uh, between being intelligent and being naive. You can be a very intelligent person and still be very naive, you know, in the ways of the world. And Ruby, because she has been, you know, all her knowledge is bookish. Uh, she doesn't really have experience of the world. And so when she is uh, let loose in the world, and when she arrives in a place which is so full of um, characters who are so much more worldly than she is, her naivety um, shows up. Um, and the second thing that I uh, wanted to say with regard to um, her relationship uh, with, the, um, with the politician 
is that I know so many, many bright young people in Pakistan um, and uh, also in India uh, and in America and in the UK who are so um, enamored of the populist leaders um, uh, of these countries. And I can see very clearly how they are being used in the narrative and how the narrative is not uh, is, is dishonest. But they can't for some reason. They are completely blind. And that is something which is very interesting to me that all these really intelligent people choose not to see because they have decided that they're going to push a particular kind of narrative and they're not going to look at anything else that does not conform to that narrative. Absolutely. So in, in another interview, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, you always write what you know. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned that you were raised with, you raised by very outspoken women. And I related to that a lot because, uh, you know, even I come from a family where, you know, all my cousins, all of us, it's a, it's a woman's family. My brother's yeah. the only boy. Um, and so I'm also used to sort of, you know, being in an environment where everyone has a say and all of those things while we are sort of within this patriarchal society. Um, so I was very interested to know, you know, who was Ruby fashioned after? Uh, who was there anybody specific or was she an amalgamation? Um, Ruby is a composite character. You know, I worked in a newspaper in Pakistan, uh, the Friday Times, for many years before um, I um, started writing um, novels, etc. And I came across many young female uh, journalists at the time who were idealistic, who were hardworking, um, and who uh, were also very well-intentioned because they wanted to uncover stories uh, which were which would make life, you know, um, pursue truths, really. I have also come across many young women who I know are uh, educated and aware of the world and yet choose to see things very differently. So I brought those two um, two kinds of women together. Um, and created uh, both Ruby and Farah. And, and Ruby and Farah are very similar, but Ruby takes a slightly different path to Farah. Right, yeah. So Farah is the best friend of uh, Ruby. Mm. Yeah, they're both very, very outspoken. And yes. within their journey, something happens to the friendship. Um, so when I was look, thinking about all the questions that we wanted to ask, and I was running it by my co-host, Michelle, who, uh, you know, it's her ambition to be an author one day. So uh, she had the question that, you know, what about the male characters in the book? Are they also based on, you know, write what you know, and how do you fashion them? They, they were just, uh, they came out of what I see around me. I, there wasn't one person that I, I uh, based them on. Um, so Saif Haq also has a sort of a movie past. You know, he's been a, um, a film actor. All I really wanted for Saif was to be a kind of 24-carat celebrity because the one thing that I also notice now is this kind of worship of celebrities, uh, which is so dominant in, in our culture now. People almost sort of uh, accept whatever they they say as as kind of self evident truths, you know, or truths to live their lives by. Um, so, Seth, I I took a little bit, I have to say, from nineteen seventies Amitabh Bachchan, you know, on 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 uh, how he used to be such a big sort of uh, screen hero. I took a little bit of Trump. I took a little bit of Imran Khan. I took a little bit of Boris Johnson, and I made Seth Faisal. Just I I. 
created him out of um, thin air, I think. But he must come from people that I've seen around. I didn't base him on one particular person. Um, but yeah, um, people used to accuse me in, in uh, when I wrote Butterfly that all the male characters uh, are nice and all the female <laughs> characters are less nice. I think it's the other way around in um, Impeccable Integrity Ruby R. And you know, I also read that you find that a lot of male readers uh, have read Diary of a Social Butterfly. So do you know why that is? Um, so the Diary of a Social Butterfly used to appear on the back page of um, the Friday Times, which is a weekly newspaper which comes out of Lahore. And um, it is um, it was a very popular page because it used to have the diary of uh, the fictitious diary of Musharraf, the fictitious diary of Benazir Bhutto, of Nawaz Sharif, of Im- Imran Khan. So people read it as a political um, uh, satire, which it was as well. It was a social satire as well as a, uh, as political satire. And when men picked up the Friday Times, they didn't sort of flick over that page and think, I, this is not for me. They read that as well. And that's where I got my... Um, male readership from. They associate it with political and social satire. They don't think of it as chiclet at all. And yeah, so just for our listeners, you know, uh, the Diary of a Social Butterfly is a column that it's so funny, you know, when I read it, because the character Butterfly, she's part of Pakistan's elite, and she's just going from party to party. And, you know, there are all of these catastrophes that are going on in the world. And she's completely oblivious and in her own world and it's also so relatable because you know we all know characters like this so it, it was really really funny but I like what you said about um, the fact that it is not chiclet and it is a social satire you had said that you when you were looking at publishers because you got a lot of offers you wanted a publisher who could understand that so can you tell our listeners and me a little bit more about uh, you know, you decided to go with your publisher. And then what was that editor-writer relationship like to bring this book of columns, of your columns out into the world? I used to write the column and it used to appear also in an Indian newspaper. And for many years, it appeared in the Indian newspaper. So the the readers of that paper had become familiar with the Diary of a Social Butterfly. And I didn't really know how many people read it. But I uh, came to India, uh, I went to Jaipur um, to the literary festival and I had a new, my first novel out, which was The End of Innocence. And after I had done a panel, a publisher, sorry, from um, HarperCollins, I think, and she said to me, I would really like you to think about doing a book on uh, the diary of a social butterfly. And I said, but, you know, it's already appeared in columns and who would want to read it again? And, you know, why would anybody want it? And she said, you know, when it's a book, it becomes a different thing. And you might be surprised by who wants to read it, etc. And um, think about it. And at that time, I was thinking of writing another novel, but it wasn't going well. And I thought I'll edit them and put them together in a form of a book with an introduction and a, and a kind of afterward. And... Um, see how it goes. So I did that. And um, I called my friend Pankaj Mishra and I asked him in London, I said, you know, I want to um, send this to India. Uh, Who do you suggest? And he gave me four or five names, one of whom was Chiki Sarkar, who had just started um, at Random House. And I didn't know Chiki and I sent it off to um, uh, the five publishers that he suggested. And two of them wrote back and said that it wasn't really their thing. Um, but three of them were very keen. 
And uh, the person who wrote back first of all was Chiki. She wrote back immediately. And uh, she said, this is the first book I've ever read, which begins with the word haw. And she said that made her want it. And so um, she she was extremely um, encouraging. And um, she said to me that this is something new. She said, I had thought that this book would come out of India. And the fact that it has come out of Pakistan is a source of great interest to me. And I would like to publish it. And so she published it very, very well. I think within about two, three months of its release. And I was actually very surprised by how well it did in India. Um, and then about three months after the launch of the book, she wrote to me and she said, how about writing a novel with these uh, same characters? And that's how Tender Hooks was born. And and then she launched uh, Tender Hooks as well and Return of the Butterfly. And then, of course, uh, and she did all of them very, very well. And then she went off, uh, you know, with um, Juggernaut. She left um, Random House. And so my next book now, um, uh, the new one, uh, Ruby, has come out with um, Penguin because since then, Penguin and Random House have merged. What was that publishing process like for you for your latest book? You know, I'm sure it must have been very different from when you first started out as a debut writer. It is different because now you can sort of... um, you can be more forthright about <laughs> what you want and what you think, etc. I had much greater say in the cover of the book, in the design of it, uh, in the design of um, the cover of Ruby R. I had also more, you know, I could push back when when my edits were questioned. Um, I could push back and say, no, I don't think this works. I think this, as I wrote it, is, is more um, effective. And uh, so you can do things like that. But generally, um, you know, it, it was very amicable and uh, easy. The only problem, of course, has been COVID and the fact that um, I had to work entirely online and on, on my computer. And when you see um, manuscript on paper, it's different. It's easier to see many things which you miss on the screen. So those things were harder. And of course, every all the publicity has been online. You know, I have not been able to travel to India. Yeah, I mean, COVID has definitely changed the way that all of us think about pretty much everything. I also read, you wrote a column about how to write satire. And in that column, you wrote, only the wealthy deserve to be laughed at. (laughs) Um, Why only the wealthy? Wealthy people, as I say to you, have so much privilege that they are protected from so much in life. Uh, They have much more choice over what um, they can and cannot uh, do or what they want to do. Um, They have so much more latitude. Um, they, uh, are, you know, they have an easy ride through life, much easier. Of course, I mean, every person is a human being, um, and everybody suffers and everybody hurts, but, um, no, I get that. I, I hear what you're saying. And you know, another thing that comes out from reading your books is that yes, it's funny and there's so many laugh out loud moments and it's relatable, but it's not mean. And it's sort of, it's sort of very humane it's very empathetic and i feel that must be so difficult to do and, and so how do you maintain that balance of you know so tara you know actually i want to i want to rewind a little bit over here and say that i do have a laugh about uh, ordinary things as well and ordinary people as well but in that i i try and sort of look at the comedic things in life there you know i don't I don't ridicule the rich. I feel I can ridicule, you know, I have license to ridicule the rich. It's okay. (laughs) They they won't suffer too much. 
and to be uh, humorous about uh, without being cruel. I think sometimes I do cross over occasionally, um, and sometimes you do have to cross it. Uh, because you can't be uh, forgiving at all times. Some things are not to be forgiven. Some things have to be pointed out. Some things have to be corrected. And the whole idea of satire is to try and bring about change, right? So um, uh, particularly, you know, in, in these kinds of times when minorities are being victimized, etc., you have to take a stand. And, um, you know, people who write comedy and people who write satire also have to take a stand. And that's what you try and do. You try and speak truth to power. And you can't do that uh, affectionately at all times. I, I sometimes think that I, I often think that's my actual job, in fact. Yeah, especially what you said about people who write humor, even comedians sort of shining a light on society. I mean, I've seen in India, you know, um, comedians will make jokes and it's taken so badly. There's a lot of backlash. Have you ever, you know, experienced that? Or, you know, is that something that you think about when you're writing, what you're writing? And, and how do you, you know, where, how do you even know what the line is for you? And, you know, when you want to cross it and when not? You want to, as you say, shine a light on injustice. You want to do that. And you should do that. That's your job as a satirist. Uh, it's also your job to uh, protect your skin. Um, so you have to be careful. You know, there are lots of very powerful uh, players in, in my country and you have to be careful not to antagonize them far too much. But, um, but still you have to speak out and, and I, you know, it's a fine line to tread. Um, and I try and tread that line. Um, I'm sure that, you know, this book is, is more, uh, overtly political than, than my other work and it may, um, attract more uh, comment um, than than I have so far, but uh, you know, as I said, you have to speak truth to power, and these are things that I feel very strongly about. Particularly the way people are victimized um, in through social media, and how they are trolled and bullied, and how particularly how women are singled out for um, intimidation. I feel very strongly about that, and I wanted to write about it. Um, and even if people um, are unhappy, some, you know, sort of patriarchal men are unhappy reading it, well, so be it. No, definitely. And I really, really like the portrayal of social media. And, you know, when Ruby, the character, starts controlling sort of uh, an army of trolls, I mean, mm -hmm. I found that so <laughs> mind-blowing. And also, you know, that whole trolling and all of those things, you've captured it so well because... You know, we we know this happens in in, in you know almost every country, yeah. uh, and it's so so alarming. So I thought that was captured really well. It's not just people writing on their own; people are paid to do this. It's their job, right? It's, it's scary. Speaking of social media, I also wanted to know what is your relationship to social media. Ah, uh, a slightly uncomfortable one. Um, I use social media. But I also want to protect my privacy. So I have, I, you know, I see a lot of people putting up pictures of, of um, themselves at, at, you know, on their holidays with friends. And um, I, I always felt that a part of my life is private and should remain private. Uh, I want to comment on, on things that are happening in the world. And I use that for social media. I, I mean, I use social media for those. Um, but 
I, I guess I'm learning and, you know, I don't have the easy and comfortable relationship with it that a lot of teenagers, for example, have. Um, I, I'm still, you know, I'm on the fence about it. Um, and I do, but I also understand that it is very important to push, to use it, to push your own work, to push your, your writing, to push your career. Um, and I see the, um, how useful it is for those. So I want to do that, but at the same time, stay private. And that's a difficult thing to juggle. And I'm learning it all the time. Right. I think we're all navigating this brave new world. Um, I love books and I find myself primarily picking up a lot of books which have which in which the protagonist is female the other day i was speaking to another author on this podcast who's also a satirist and she said something very interesting and i wanted your opinion on it as well she said there's patriarchy even in the literary industry and there's this whole hierarchy of prizes and all of those things and social satire is not given its due so do you agree with that do you disagree and if it is not given its due why is it not given its due? Because I mean, it is the, I think it's the hardest thing to be convincingly funny. I think people think it is easy. I think people think that also that the big serious topics are what literature is all about and that it is um, to be a big beast in the world of literature. You have to write on weighty topics with which you engage most deeply and profoundly. And often I have to say extremely tediously, but um, that is the idea of, of uh, what, what writing is all about. Um, and I've noticed that when women write about other things uh, which are of interest to women, for example, they are not considered important. And even when women, uh, so for example, if, if a woman writes um, a story of love between two people, it is a, um, a dismissed as a, as a romance. When a man okay. does it, when a man does it, it is the great love story of our times, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, so I know it's, it's just, uh, it's just the way the industry works. And, you know, uh, romance writers who, who bring in so much money for publishers and are very, very important, uh, are dismissed all the time, you know, um, and are somehow or the other talked down to as, as, as um, fluffy and as faintly ridiculous, etc. Yeah, I mean, I really do hope that, you know, uh, in the future, uh, this doesn't happen. And especially, you know, the slotting of romance stories into things like chiclet. Uh, because yes, women's stories are so important for <laughs> half the population. And they're not just women's stories, they're stories of people, basically. Yes, it's stories of people, exactly. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I'm also always being sort of, you know, given pink covers and put into chiclet and, mm. you know, and I've always considered myself to be a, a writer of, of social commentary and social satire. I don't see why if that that should only be confined to women readers. Right. And speaking about, you know, labeling and all of those things. So, you know, your books have also been published uh, for Western audiences. So, you know, a lot of Indian and Pakistani writers have now, they're now being published in the UK, the US to international audiences. So do you think that writers from the subcontinent have a certain responsibility when writing about our culture for Western audiences? And and what if there is a responsibility, what is it? 
Tara, this is very interesting subject for me because I've just launched a podcast called Browned Off uh, with a friend of mine called Faiza Khan. And this is what we discuss in it. Our very first episode is actually about diversity in publishing. And um, we were uh, discussing how our stories always have to do with either our caste or if you're Muslim, then it has to be about terrorism and Islam and it has to be about slums and it has to be about injustice and it has to be about poverty or it has to be about um, the mistreatment of women. And we are not allowed. And all of these stories have to some, be engaged with very deeply and very um, seriously. And um, they have to educate white audiences because only uh, we are not allowed to write anything uh, other than those stories. And in fact, I had um, about uh, exactly, almost exactly a year ago, I had um, lunch with a British editor and she said to me, you know, um, if you want to be published here, you have to remember that our readers don't like humor from the subcontinent. Um, oh my God. <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, a blank statement oh like that. This was before BLM, right? Before that the movement really erupted. Now I think she'd be scared to say that to me. But um, at that point, she said this to me, that we, we are not interested for, uh, in humor from the subcontinent. Our readers want deep, serious books from you guys, which, which sort of, you know, which tell us about the real subcontinent real subcontinent for them is only the subcontinent of, of suffering, you know, whereas white writers can write about anything they want. They can write about um, uh, girl gangs if they want. They can write about, they can write humor. They can write um, science fiction. They can write um, detective stories. They can write horror. They can write fantasy. But we, if we want to be published in the subcontinent, have to stay in our lane. And that lane has been given to us by um, white um, gatekeepers in, in the publishing industry. And I'm not so sure because it also um, presumes that, you know, brown right readers and, and you know, readers of color in, this, in, the, um, in, the, in the UK and in America have no uh, desire to read for a start. And secondly, that even the, the reader that they have in mind, which is a white reader who's a, who's a woman, because most novels are bought by women in in the UK and I think around the world as well, that she has very conservative tastes and she only likes these kind of books and she is not going to be budged from her position. So most books that you see about the subcontinent are, fall into that kind of um, very, um, in, within those parameters, in very narrow parameters. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got to constantly push and and say that you know no I want to write this and I will write this and keep on pushing. Having said that, you know my um, tender hooks was published here. Also, then they don't you know they don't publicize those books when they are published because and and when they don't do well, then they turn around to you and they say I'm so sorry, but people don't want to read these books. And you come back to square one, and then you have to write that serious book, and you have to write that book on Islamic terrorism, and then you have to write that book about the girl in the parda, and you have to write about you know um, uh, your slums. You have to write you know goes on and on and on right no absolutely um and i really again hope that that changes too but it reminds me of um you know one of the books that is so good just for its story which was avni doshi's burnt sugar and how well that did internationally and that was just a completely different story from the ones that you know the ones that you mentioned that really editors push um, and that was very heartening to see and it was an absolutely cutting and fantastic 
uh, novel. So yeah, I mean, kudos to authors like you and her who are pushing those boundaries. That's it's really amazing. No, of course, they're always outliers, you know, they're always outliers. So even that, that book, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, My Sister, the Serial Killer, you know, it was just a straightforward story about these two sisters and their relationship and, and their relationship to their father um, in, in Lagos. She was not trying to explain uh, racism. She was not trying to explain tribalism. She's not trying to explain AIDS in Africa. She's not trying to explain poverty. You know, it was a complete departure and it did very, very well. So I'm hoping that in the future, you will have more books like that, books which have the confidence to tell the story that they want to tell and, and writers who, who will chart new directions for um, other writers of color. Yeah, that, that would be amazing. And yeah, I love that book. I mean, I was into it because... It was just so different than anything I've read in terms of, you know, the whole character analysis and all of those things. So, you know, another very interesting thing which I read about you and I did a lot of research in sort of the early years when you were writing, you you had children. And so you wrote when you, you said you wrote when your kids were asleep, sometimes in the park, sometimes in the car. So what is your writing process like now and how has it changed over the years? So now I have all the leisure in the world. My, my, my daughter has gone to a university and um, my son is, actually both of them at university. Now they're at home because of COVID, but otherwise they're at university and they don't need my constant attention. So I have a lot of time. But this is something that happens to a lot of women. I remember interviewing Babsi Sidwa, who wrote The Crow Eaters and Ice Candy Man. Um, and she said to me, um, when I was a journalist myself, I was, you know, in my twenties at that time. And she said to me, I have always written in the cracks and crevices of my life. So first I would, uh, look after my husband and my children. Then I'd take care of the home. Then I'd go and look after my mother. And then if I had any time left, I would write. Um, and because that was the way that my, um, uh, jobs, those were the priorities that were, uh, put upon me. Um, with regard to myself, now I have a lot of time and I um, write in the mornings. I sort of try and get to my desk around 10 o'clock and I write till about um, four with, with break for lunch. And um, then about four or five o'clock, I stop uh, because I find that I've run out of things to say usually. Um, if I can get a th good thousand words out of those, I'm delighted, but most often I don't. And the next day when I open my computer again, I look at it and I think, oh my God, this is so bad. And I have to ditch it all and start it again. But I think it's important to try and, and move forward. If not every day, then every other day. Sometimes you have good days, sometimes you have bad days. Um, but um, generally I try and, and uh, write a little bit every day. No, that's such great advice and so applicable for everything in life. You know, if you want to get good at anything, it requires showing up in that daily practice. How long did it take you to write uh, your latest novel? This one um, was about two years. Two years. Wow. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is a very quick one. Um, um, the end of innocence took five years. But that's also because my children were small at that time. And as I said, I, I had very little spare time. Um, this time it's been easier. Um, I hope that the next time will be easier still. But sometimes, you know, um, 
when you're writing about a new subject and you're finding new characters and you are writing about a, um, a situation which is not um, uh, very familiar to you, you have to familiarize yourself with the processes, with, with, the, with the imaginary world that you're building as well. And uh, that takes time. And sometimes you, you strike false notes. And then when you're reading over it, you realize this is wrong, this wouldn't happen. And then you cut it out and, and this doesn't seem real or it doesn't seem to go with the rest of it and then it's, it's a constant process of understanding that new world that you're creating as well it takes time yeah it i can't imagine the amount of effort and and obviously you know two years seems short but it's so long to spend in a world in a character and just fleshing it out and you can really see you know in the books that are really really interesting you can really see that effort that has gone in behind the writing and, and by that I don't mean that it's you know very flower it doesn't have to be flowery or overly sort of written but you can even in that simplicity you can see the hours that have gone behind the writing and that's for me when as a reader makes a book that much more interesting and I also want to ask this is something that my co-host Michelle would have loved to ask because you know, she's had a lot of writing mentors and she really has cultivated this writer's community for herself. So what is the community like for, you know, writers in Pakistan? What kind of support systems are there? Can you speak a little bit more about that? So I think we are quite scattered. Um, I live in uh, London uh, from the writers that I, I know and who I um, talk to. So Kamila Shamsi lives here. She's a great um, uh support uh, and a very encouraging uh, friend. Um, she has always uh, also given me very good blurbs, um, for which I'm deeply appreciative. There is um, uh, Mohsen Hamid, there is Mohammed Hanif, there is Daniel Moinuddin. And, you know, you can talk with them and, they, and but, you know, they, uh, Mohsen lives in Lahore. Daniel um, divides his time between Oxford and America and, and his farm in Pakistan. So we are a scattered bunch and it's difficult to constantly be uh, in touch. But I know that whenever I've asked for anything, whenever I have uh, asked their opinion or whenever they, uh, I've asked them to read something, They've been extremely um, supportive, extremely uh, constructive as well, and have been a huge source of, of help and confidence as well. I'm deeply, deeply grateful. Right. And what about for aspiring writers? And I absolutely love some of the literature that is coming out from Pakistan. I've read all of the authors that you mentioned. So what about aspiring writers? What, what kind of support system uh, is there for them? So last, not last year, the year before, I was asked to be on the judging panel of a, a new literary prize um, uh, called the Zenith Haroon Rashid Writing Prize, uh, only open to Pakistani women uh, or of women of Pakistani um, uh, extraction. Um, and I have to say, Tara, the writing was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And by young Pakistani women, you know, mostly in their early 20s uh, or mid 20s, astonishingly high level, the, the style, the construction, um, the storytelling, the arguments, the bravery, um, the language, the dialogue, it was stunning. I was so, so encouraged to read them. Um, and also so much braver than uh, anything that I have written. Um, and very willing to go 
to places that I would be hesitant to go to. So, for example, writing about their own sort of private lives, writing about abuse in the family, writing about very difficult um, divorces that their parents had, writing about um, sexual harassment at work or on the streets, etc., and, and you know, writing very frankly about self harm, really, really incredible writing. I'm very hopeful for the future of Pakistani writing. And that sounds really, really exciting. I think two of my favorite Desi authors ever um, are uh, Mohsin Hamid and that Danyal. Uh, I just love their stories and uh, and the kind of writing. It's just brilliant. So coming to the end of this podcast, uh, I want to ask you, you know, about the writers that you admire. What is your reading style? Do you have any particular genre? And, and what are some social satirists that are a must read for anybody who wants to write in this genre? I um, must say I enjoy books by women greatly. I have been reading um, the work of a British novelist who was writing in the 50s and 60s. Her name is Elizabeth Taylor, uh, much like the star, exactly like the star, but she is um, little known even in England. Uh, So I don't know, you know, in the subcontinent, she's barely known, but her work is brilliant. She writes about sort of small domestic stories, but so clever, so funny, so sharp, so insightful. Um, The style is extraordinary. Um, I love her work. I love Nancy Mitford's work. I love Evelyn Waugh. I think he's a great satirist, but cruel, very sharp and, and quite sort of unforgiving. I also love the work of subcontinental writers like um, Sadat Hassan Munto. Uh, his stories, some of them are very funny as well, but also absolutely brilliant and so perceptive and well-observed and so strongly political. And when I say truthful, you know, I was talking about being truthful as a writer. He is uncompromisingly truthful at all times. Also, the writings of Isma Chukhtai, uh, who wrote in Urdu, uh, like Manto, chronicled the decline of the Muslim, wealthy Muslim families of Lucknow. Absolutely brilliant writing. She's an insider writing about her own families, her own class, her own people. But she writes with great honesty and with great courage. I think um, these are the people I admire greatly. Of course, now, when I, once I finish talking to you, I'll think of 100 others, but um, I've enjoyed their work very much. You asked me earlier about young sort of Pakistani writers as well. There's an, uh, a gentleman called Usman Hanif who has just written a book called Blasphemy. Uh, again, an interesting subject, a very emotive subject in Pakistan. Um, so people are also writing quite you know, brave books. And I'm very encouraged by that. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of interesting books that are coming out. And thank you so much for the recommendation. So what are to end, you know, what are some tips that you would give for writers who want to write social satire? What are some of the things that they should do to sharpen their skills? A, I always say to people, if you want to be a writer, you have to be a reader first. So read as widely as you can, read books by satirists, see how do they achieve the effects that they're achieving. So I would just say sharpen your observe, um, observation skills, listen very carefully, read as much as you can, and then 
start writing and write every day. Even if you manage to write only a hundred words, write every day if you can. Your powers of observation are higher than anyone else's because the characters in your book, especially Butterfly, is so keenly observed just from, you know, even the mannerisms to sort of, I really like the part where she had this clicker and she would click every time she met somebody and she would count the number of clicks that that she had clicked at the end of the party and it was just it's just hilarious and those small details make such a big difference in every book those specific you know keen highly absorbed details make the make make such a difference to a reader so before we close a short little rapid fire round <laughs> which we do with all the authors all our authors so i will begin since i am solo today uh so london or lahore both I can't be without okay. Lahore. I cannot be without Lahore. And but when I'm in Lahore, then I start missing London. <laughs> okay, so we know you like cooking. So your favorite desi dish? Dal. Nice. What is your favorite holiday destination? It has to be a place which has physical beauty as well as um, some culture. So a small city like like Florence or Rome. I've I've almost loved Jaipur. I think it's beautiful. Jaipur is Jaipur lovely. Jaipur is beautiful. Yeah, and it combines both things. It's 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 has you know, and you don't have to travel far out of Jaipur to get out into the surrounding countryside. Sometimes yeah. you know, in, in in Delhi or in Karachi, you have to travel for miles before you see any, um, you know, get out into the country. I love um, I love Rome as well. I think it's lovely. I love Paris as well. Wow, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, pandemic will end and travel will open up. But that's another story. Yeah. So three books. You three books. Every social butterfly should read. Love in a cold climate. The diary of a social butterfly is the second, <laughs> and the third is. Um, Gentlemen prefer blondes. All right, great. And what is next for you? My podcast at the moment, uh, which I'm enjoying hugely, just called Browned Off. Um, and I hope to start a novel around sort of beginning of February. That's a deadline I've given myself. I don't know what it will be about. I think it will be set in England and it will have some uh, a friendship between uh, a Desi person and uh, a an English woman, a Desi woman and an English woman. What that form, what form that friendship will take, I haven't yet decided. But I want to turn the brown gaze onto the onto white people. You know, it's always been them describing us. I want to describe them now to how they seem to us. Um, I want to write that story. I cannot wait to read that. <laughs> so I will be there to buy your book when it, whenever it's out. Um, but thank you so much Moni for your time and thank you so much for your valuable insights I have learned a lot and I really really appreciate um, you coming on this podcast and best of luck for your books and for your podcast round off thank you Tara I love speaking to Moni she's one of the people that I want to be when I grow up and it's just so inspiring that you know we get to speak to these amazing authors and amazing women authors who've done so much one of the things that I found really really fascinating was when her editor you know was hooked onto her book because of the opening line which says ha oh. <laughs> uh, you know that's sort of really really funny to me and it made me think of you know opening lines that i've loved from books that i've edited and uh, one of them that comes to my mind is 
Lavanya Lakshmi Narayan's sci-fi book, Analog Virtual. Superb book, done really, really well. And the line goes like this. Nobody notices anything because nothing has happened. Not yet anyway. And you know, that's one of the lines that just really hooks you in. And I immediately knew that, you know, this is something good. So opening lines are so important. And as you know, we at Bound, we're a story company. And we help you tell your stories. So if you want to know or you want to workshop with us how to write engaging opening chapters, or if you've already written one and you want feedback, reach out to us at connect at boundindia.com or DM us at boundindia. We'd love to read your story. You can find out more about our editorial services. And we just love being surrounded by words. Speaking of, on our next episode, again, we will be speaking to another amazing author. I know I say amazing for all authors, but yes, another amazing author. So she, her name is Rohini Rajkopal and you won't believe the title of her memoir. It's called, What's a Lemon Squeezer Doing in My Vagina? <laughs> so obviously that is going to hook you. But the story is very, very poignant. It's heart-wrenching. It's funny because it talks about her journey with infertility. And that's still such a taboo topic in our society, right? So she's written about, you know, how she longed for motherhood, how she went through, you know, the journey towards becoming a mother, you know, all the medical stuff, the family support, the stigma, but she's written it with beauty and grace. And she talks about all of these things and more in the next episode. So I certainly can't wait for you guys to listen to it. And I hope you read the book. And if you like the book, I'd love to discuss it with everybody. So, tune in Wednesday. Until next time, as always, you can find us on at Bound India on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.